0: You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF.
1: Hello. Good evening. I'm Angela Glover Blackwell. I'm the founder and resident of PolicyLink and host of the podcast Radical Imagination. And we're here tonight to have a very, very important conversation about ending subminimum wage. It is a classic example of how, when we take one part of the population and place them at a disadvantage, everybody suffers. It shows that the legacy of slavery, not only marginalizes and impoverishes people who are black and brown, it places a huge swath of the workforce at risk. But we know this really is a manifestation of the ugliest chapter in the nation. It goes all the way back to stolen land. It goes all the way back to slave labor. And it goes back in this sense, that those things could exist because the nation had gotten and perpetuated a hierarchy of human value. And that hierarchy of human value left people with the impression that it was okay to engage in genocide in stolen land, human bondage, and slave labor. And when slavery ended, that narrative did not go away. That hierarchy did not disappear. It stayed. It got embedded. And it not only was embedded in a way that was just in the culture. It was embedded in a way that was very explicit around policy. I also teach a class uh, on race and public policy. And we were reading the congressional record back during the debate of trying to get the minimum wage to cover all workers. And a congressional representative from the South said you would be taking away God's gift to the South. Can you imagine Can you imagine? It's that approach that has led to right up to this moment that we pay some people less than anybody should be paid for their labor. And so we need to talk about it. There is a movement going forward and the movement is gaining a momentum, but we have a long way to go. Some people in some states are starting to be able to break out of this history that I'm describing, but everybody is not. So we need to hear about it. And we're very, very grateful that Saru Jayarama has written a book about it. The book is One Fair Wage Ending Subminimum Pay in America. And she is exactly the person to be doing this because she is co-founder and president of One Fair Wage. She's also the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. And she has spent over 20 years organizing restaurant and other service workers. So not only does she understand the problem in depth, but she understands this fact, that while she is very clear and very focused on who she's working for, she understands that it is this kind of campaigning, this kind of effort, this kind of breakthrough that begins to open up for people who are white and poor, people who who have disabilities, all of those who suffer because we have allowed our economy to develop around a hierarchy of human values. To tell us more about it, we're joined by Saru. Saru?
0: Thank you so much, Angela. It's such an honor to have you start and moderate this panel about this book. Um, You're such an inspiration to me and so many other people. Thank you for being here. Thank you for opening. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this, and to all of our allies and partners who'll be following me speaking. Um, Chef Kren, Linda, one of our leaders at One Fair Wage, um, Esteban, who's been working to end the subminimum wage for incarcerated workers, John, who will share his own experience as a formerly incarcerated person, uh, and Sarah, talking about a recent victory about subminimum wages for people with disabilities, um, as well as Vanessa, who can talk to us about gig workers who receive the equivalent of a subminimum wage in California and all around the country. So, thank you all for being here to discuss. Uh, what really is, as Angela said, a true legacy of slavery and something that needs to end. You know, I've written several books and had lots of book events, but this particular moment and that this book is coming out in, and this particular book is very special and very different. It comes at a moment of extraordinary change in our economy, in the service sector. Something I've been fighting for for over 20 years and that has affected workers for over 150 years is about to shift forever. And I think it can be the harbinger for many other workers to finally stop receiving sub pay. And I'll explain why that is. But just to note, we are in a very, very special moment. So uh, I began this work after 9-11 together with workers from Windows on the World, which was the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One. On the morning of 9-11, we just commemorated the 20th anniversary, about 73 workers died in the restaurant. And I was asked as a young organizer and attorney to start an organization that would initially help the surviving workers and the families of the victims get back on their feet. But it grew into a national organization fighting to raise wages and working conditions in the restaurant industry all over the country. And everywhere we went, all over the country, we kept Hearing from workers, we kept asking workers, what is your top concern? What are your top issues? And they kept saying over and over again, we are most concerned about our wages. And when we looked at the data, that started to make sense. The restaurant industry has been the second largest and number one fastest growing private sector employer in the United States. It's almost 14 million workers prior to the pandemic. But it's also been the absolute lowest-paying employer for generations, largely due to the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA. It's been driven by the chains, IHOP, Denny's, Applebee's, Olive Garden. But it's actually been around for a very long time. Actually, it was formed just after emancipation, and as Angela mentioned, that is the source of all of all of our original sins, uh, that is the source also of subminimum wages in the u s. because prior to emancipation, actually, tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. When it came to the states, it was it came right actually before emancipation. It came right around the time that something else really big happened in the service sector. in eighteen fifty three, Waiters who were mostly men, mostly white, and got a full minimum wage went on strike in major cities across the U.S., and the restaurant industry at first replaced those waiters with men, I'm sorry, with women, excuse me, in retaliation towards the men who wanted a higher wage. So first they replaced them with women, and then at emancipation, they replaced them with Black people and Black women in particular, with the idea that they could offer them nothing at all, let them live on nothing, no wage, and have them rely entirely on tips. In some cases, Black people were charged for the privilege of being able to obtain white people's tips. And so I tell that history to help us understand that the origin of of many of the subminimum wages we're going to talk about today is ugly. The origin of the subminimum wage for tipped workers cannot be seen as anything other than a devaluation of Black lives and women's work, because there actually was a wage in this country for restaurant workers. It went down to zero as women and Black people entered the, the industry. And that is that was actually made law in 1938 as part of the New Deal, when everybody got the right to the minimum wage for the first time, except for tipped workers, of course, who were told you get a $0 wage as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage. And we went from zero in 1938 all the way up to $2.13 an hour, which I think a lot of people in California don't realize $2.13 is still the federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States of America in 2021. And 43 states in the US, not California, but 43 states in the US continue with this legacy of slavery. Very blue states, New York, DC, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C. all have a sub minimum wage and have for generations since emancipation 43 states allow this overwhelmingly majority women women of color population of servers restaurant servers and bartenders who mostly work in very casual restaurants to rely on tips and put up with the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the U.S. because they must tolerate inappropriate customer behavior to feed their families. Now, in California, we got rid of this system 50 years ago, and we not only have higher restaurant industry sales per capita, higher job growth in the industry, higher actually tipping averages, we also have one half the rate of sexual harassment in restaurants because we allow women to get a full minimum wage and all workers to get a full minimum wage. Minimum wage in the restaurant industry. They don't have to rely as much on tips, though they get tips. They're not as dependent on customers. The power dynamic is actually reduced between customers and servers when they get a full minimum wage and can reject harassment from customers. So this was an issue. The subminimum wage for tipped workers was an issue long before the pandemic. It was a source of poverty and economic instability and sexual harassment for a majority female workforce nationwide, and we fought to have all states follow California's model. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska got rid of this. We fought to have this followed in the rest of the country. And we won. We won on the ballot in Maine. We won in the legislature in Michigan. We won in the, on the ballot in Washington, D.C. But do you know that every time we won this issue over the last 10 years, each time the Restaurant Association poured millions of dollars into vitriolic and sometimes violent fights, to overturn the will of the people. So in Maine, this passed on the ballot, the legislature overturned it. In Washington, D.C., this passed on the ballot, the legislature overturned it. In Michigan, this passed in the legislature and the legislature overturned it. In each case, based on a very vitriolic fight, a very bitter fight to say workers should not get a full minimum wage in these states. When this happened, when we pushed and we won and they paid so much money to lobby to have it overturned, we realized we had hit a nerve that this was not just about a subminimum wage. This was not just about that number of $2 or $3 or $4 as it is in most states. This was fundamentally about power and about a power that has existed for 150 years since emancipation. It was about power that this industry has over its workers. And the more we studied the root causes of this issue, the more we understood the fight was much bigger even than just tipped workers, even than just restaurant workers. There are actually, we learned, many different sub-minimum wages in the U.S. And this book is my first attempt to bring together the stories of many different sub-minimum wage workers. So there's a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, not just restaurant workers, but in 43 states, nail salon and hair salon and car wash workers and parking attendants and wheelchair operators all get a sub-minimum wage. So when you fly to most, Most other states, if you are injured and you're in a wheelchair, the person who pushes pushes your wheelchair typically gets two, three or four dollars an hour. All of those workers get a subminimum wage for tipped workers, but there's also a subminimum wage in most states for workers with disabilities based on a grotesque idea that people with disabilities are worth less. There is a subminimum wage for incarcerated workers based on the exception to the 13th amendment that allows for slavery in the case of incarceration, which is a particular shame for us here in California where it still exists because one third of our firefighting workforce. Firefighters that are out there fighting those wildfires are incarcerated, and we'll hear more about that. There's a subminimum wage in many states for youth and everywhere right now, gig workers who are misclassified get the equivalent of a subminimum wage because when you add up what they earn versus what they're paying out in costs, it is the equivalent to less than the minimum wage. All of these workers get a subminimum wage Two of these subminimum wages are direct legacies of slavery, the subminimum wage for tipped workers and the subminimum wage for incarcerated workers. But all of them are reflections of America's valuation of some people as subhuman, as worth less than others, either because of the color of their skin or because of their ability, their disability or their ability, or because of their age or because of their status all of these sub-minimum wages are reflections of America's valuation of some people as less than. And that is wrong, but I want to give us some hope because we are in a moment of extraordinary change. Some people are calling it the great resignation. I like to call it the great rebellion because workers are standing up across the country and saying, that's it, we're done we're not putting up with sub minimum wages anymore, at least in some sectors, in a way that can give inspiration and hope and change to other sectors as well. So listen, with the pandemic, six million restaurant workers lost their jobs. That's one in four Americans that lost their jobs was in the restaurant industry. And then we started a relief fund raised unexpectedly over $20 million, 250,000 workers applied for relief to our relief fund. It's all out the door to those workers. Two-thirds of workers reported to us that they actually couldn't get unemployment insurance because in most states they were told their sub-minimum wage as restaurant workers was too low to qualify for benefits. And then they went back to work. And they found that tips were way down because sales were down and sexual harassment And customer hostility and health risks were way up, with thousands of women telling us they were repeatedly asked, take off your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much to tip you. Take off your mask so I can see the pretty face of my server before I decide how much I want to tip. Making this issue change from not just an issue of race and gender and economic injustice, but also then becoming a matter of life and death. And so many workers at that point said, I'm done. I'm done. You're going to pay me 2, 3, 4 dollars an hour. You're going to expect me to take off my mask and expose myself and my family to the virus. You're going to ask me to impose social distancing and mask and COVID vaccination rules on the same customers from whom I get tips. It's an impossible situation and I'm done. And millions of workers have left. In May, we conducted a survey of 3,000 workers. Uh, 54% of workers who remain in the industry say they're leaving, 80% say the only thing that would make them stay or return is a full livable wage with tips on top, and employers have been responding to that. Employers like Chef Dominique Cran have always been doing the right thing, always been committed to their workers. But we've seen this sea change. We've been documenting thousands of restaurants, and the New York Times recently featured a report we put out documenting thousands of restaurants across the country now paying 13, 50 median wage plus tips. But we've been documenting restaurants in subminimum wage states paying 15, 20, 25. We've even documented some restaurants paying an hour plus tips because they are so desperate to get workers. They are looking for staff and wages are going up in response. And so now what we need, now what we need as workers are standing up and saying, we won't put it up, put up with it anymore. And employers are responding and raising wages, but saying, I can't do it by myself. I need it to be a level playing field. I need everybody to have the rates now What we need is for elected officials to follow the lead of workers and employers who are actually changing this industry as an example for what could happen in many other sectors of sub-minimum wage workers. President Biden has come out in 1000% support of not only a $15 minimum wage, but ending the sub-minimum wage for both tipped workers and workers with disabilities. And California, actually, thanks to folks like Sarah who are going to talk, just ended their subminimum wage for workers with disabilities. Illinois' governor also just announced he's not contracting with anybody that pays a subminimum wage for workers with disabilities. Gig workers just won a huge victory in New York City, and tipped workers are about to win an end to the subminimum wage in New York and D.C. I told you that we had a vitriolic, almost violent fight in Washington, D.C., where we won this and the Restaurant Association overturned it. Well, guess what? We just filed for another ballot measure to go to $15 an hour in in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where the wage is $5 an hour for tipped workers. And the Restaurant Association reached out and said, we don't want to fight you. Let's work together. Let's get this done. And we are now working together to actually end the subminimum wage quicker than we ever thought we could in Washington, D.C. So we are on the verge of victory. And we know that here we are, if we can come together as workers and employers who have fought in a partisan, in a very partisan divided nation and reached solutions, so too can all of us work together, so too can Congress and state legislatures, so too can California work to end all of these subminimum wages now in this moment of change. So I'm just going to close by saying you can do a lot to help. While well, we've ended sub minimum wages for tipped workers and workers with disabilities. Now here in California, we still have sub minimum wages for incarcerated workers who are fighting our wildfires and doing so much other work here in California and gig workers still get the equivalent of a sub minimum wage here in California. So, uh, we need to end these things here in California and we need to end the subminimum wage for tipped workers everywhere as well. So at the state level, we're hoping you can tell your state reps and the governor time to end all subminimum wages, those for incarcerated workers and those for gig workers as well. And federally, we're hoping you can work with us to let Congress know we need to pass the Raise the Wage Act now, which is the bill Biden is pushing to end the subminimum wage for tipped workers and workers with disabilities. Finally, we are tracking thousands of restaurants around the country that are raising their wages. We want you to go to our website, onefairwage.com, where you can get that list, get easy access to send messages to restaurants, telling them, good job, keep going, keep raising your wages, keep those higher wages, and you can tell your senators to do the right thing. We cannot miss this moment of incredible opportunity and change where workers are standing up. It's the Great Rebellion. We're seeing enormous change in the service sector so, workers and employers are setting the table. Now, electeds need to serve up the change we've been waiting for for 150 years. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Saru. Um, you both electrified us with the depth of the problem, but also gave us a real sense of the momentum that I was referring to earlier. This is a time like none that we have ever seen and shame on us if we don't take full advantage of it. Let me turn now to hear from Linda Vang, who is a restaurant worker in California.
2: Thank you, Angela. Um, Hi everybody, my name is Linda. I am a leader and activist based here in the Bay Area. Um, first of all, I just want to uh, say thank you to Saru and the One Fair Wage team for inviting me to be here. Um, I'm always constantly inspired by Saru's energy and passion. Thank you so much for your leadership on, on our behalf. Um, I thought I would just share a little bit perspective of uh, what it's like being an hourly wage and tip worker here in California. Um, I have been a food server a food service and hospitality industry worker for the past seven years. And because California has one fair wage, um, it meant that I was always guaranteed a full wage Plus tips on top and my employers um, did a pretty good job of pulling all the tips and uh, distributing that to every worker front of house and back of house. So with this meant that um, even if my wages fluctuated from week to week because of the tips and because of how many number of hours I work, um, because of the full wage, oh, I always had a peace of mind that I had the baseline wage that I can expect to get um, at the end of the day. Um, And during COVID, I lost um, several of my um, in-person jobs Um, and because of the full wage and also because I was always required to report all my tips um, on my paychecks. So my wages were actually high enough to qualify for unemployment. Um, And uh, it took about three months for the benefits to start rolling in, um, but they finally came eventually. Um, and because of that, um, there was always a really good sense of um, empowerment and ownership and in our workplace. so I have never been subjected to any blatant verbal abuse or sexual harassment from my coworkers or managers. So I'm always just very thankful for all of these things. Um, you know it may sound like a success story, but it's not totally is not the whole story. Um, I still have the same challenges that lots of other workers face across the country. Um, Those of you who live in the Bay Area know how expensive it is to live here. A realistic living wage here is probably $30 an hour. So our state minimum of $13 or $14 an hour is really not cutting it, is really just a survival wage. Um, So because of that, I've always had to juggle three to four gigs at the same time just to stitch together a livable income. Um, And that constant hustling can really weigh on you, Um, and because all of my jobs are part-time, or some of them are gig status, um, I was never qualified for any paid time off, Um, and there will be times when a shift will be slow, um, so I'll be sent home early, um, and my wages will be cut short for the day that I was expected to get, Um, and and I've also definitely experienced um, microaggressions from my white coworkers, um, such as um, being talked over or somebody taking credit for something I said or did, Um, So, you know, these challenges are not specific to the restaurant industry, but um, it doesn't make it okay um, that, you know, anybody has to experience these things. Um, But the bottom line I want to stress is that um, having a full wage um, really should be the bare minimum that every worker can expect to have um, so that we all can have a certain level of economic security that sort of makes it a little easier to fight the other challenges we have. Um, and uh, I learned about One Fair Wage to organization just last year. And um, I had no idea that the subminimum minimum wage um, existed in 43 other states across the country because I've always worked in California. So I was absolutely shocked and appalled Um, that the sum of wage existed um, in the wealthiest nation in the world. Um, It was just unacceptable and inhumane, um, in my opinion. Um, So that's what I wanted to get into this fight, um, because everybody has the right to live with dignity and with respect. Um, And so I just uh, am really happy to be part of the conversation and to stand together with other workers. Um, and to demand really loudly that we need better and, frankly, we all deserve better. Um, service work is really hard work. It's not on skill labor. Um, it really is um, its tremendous amount of work that we all uh, do with a lot of pride. Um, so I'm happy to be here and to, um, to say that we should all hold our elected officials accountable um, so that they can do the right thing. And to pass legislation that will actually recognize all of our sheer humanity um, with each other, and to actually improve our our own lives. Um, So it really is time to raise the minimum wage and to end the subminimum wage uh, for all workers across the country. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Uh, It is so important that we all understand the power of solidarity and what transformative solidarity is. Struggle and um, it is uh, equally important that we have people who own restaurants, part of solidarity. And the restaurant uh, San Francisco Bay Area in San Francisco, I uh, Crin.
3: Hi, how are you? How's your, hi, everyone. So nice. Uh, I think my internet is a little bit weak, so please bear with me. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I um, you know, got into the restaurant business um, not because I wanted to own a restaurant or anything like that, but it just came when I came to San Francisco. I I was a cook. I was a, I was a waitress, so I went through everything that linda went through um and then when i start to become an owner i uh was asking myself why through this those years of working in this 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 business this industry um i was i don't think i was pay what i was worth it or if i was like being a waitress like linda you know say um uh, to smile and uh, to kind of like flirt with the people. So I don't think that was right. So for me, it was to try to create a place where um, um, when you come to work in, in the company, we want you to make sure you have the money that you, you are making and as an employer that we are paying you. Can help you and go through, you know, your day-to-day operation. We didn't want to rely on anybody else, like tips out of, of you know, some people. You know, I I always believe that as an employer, you should not have an outsider to pay for your employee. You know, so this that was very important to me. So, I think it was in 2015 we I took the tips out and of the restaurant and everybody was going crazy and they didn't understand why and uh the weather was like they were all quitting and i said well we're gonna raise your wave and we're gonna make um you know a very you know fair wave you know 2015 30 dollars an hour and if anybody wants to leave any tips then it can it can be to to everybody um uh, in the restaurant so then you know, right now, I'm here, I'm here you know, as an employer that the restaurant chefs and entrepreneurs and the people that know that own those restaurants, they need they need to wake up. They need to go out there and and to also support their employee. You know, we talk about slavery and people giving tips. Yes, all of that is right. But as entrepreneurs, we have the responsibility to make sure that we pay people rightly, so um, because we're not going to have any industry anymore. And if we if if we're not you know paying our employer properly, then we don't have anybody in the restaurant business. And the restaurant business is connected to so many so many other industry. Then there is no no food, nothing, no culture. And so I think it's important for me today, um if you go to a restaurant or a to if you go to eat to a cafe, make sure that you know also the money that you're giving to, you know, and you know and, 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 and be curious about your community and maybe as a customer maybe you can raise your voice and to demand that also From everyone that is in a restaurant business, but I'm sure this is—I'm not the only one because I know that in the hairdresser, hairdressing industry, or um, to people that have also uh, cut nail or you know nail salon, I know they're very underpaid also. So um, what we need to do um, in the employer need to have the responsibility to take care of the employee, but also the government and the city and you know all the senator needs to also help us as small businesses i'm talking about small businesses we need help we're paying a lot of taxes we're paying a lot of things so it's kind of like we're being controlled to not being able to um to succeed and what we're seeing right now that america is crumbling and it's crumbling deep if you don't pay the people right, then America is going to go down, and we got to be so very true. careful about it. You know, so the ripple
1: effect is just so obvious. You don't do it yes. here, and then it shows up elsewhere. Absolutely true. Uh, let Let's go to um, Sarah Sarah Isaacs, who is the associate managing attorney at Disability Rights, another community that very much understands the subminimum pay issue.
4: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've actually been a Commonwealth Club fan for a long time on my commutes back when I used to drive to work and um, Saru and I have been in the trenches on many um, social justice issues. So I'm just so proud to stand in solidarity with her and all the my Steve activist colleagues, Um, you know, as you mentioned I'm here on behalf of Disability Rights California, but we realize that this is a very intersectional issue, that people with disabilities come from all communities and, of course, that people of color who are also people of disabilities are going to be disproportionately impacted. Um, so I, I guess I'll end on a, I will all begin on a high note to say it is um, National Disability Employment Awareness Awareness Month. So it's a fortuitous time to be invited. And um, we're celebrating the victory of um, SB 639 that was just signed into law by Governor Newsom um, on September 27th. It was, yay, yes, it was sponsored by Senator Garazzo, who's a true champion for us in this. And then Along the way, we picked up a number a number of co-authors who shared their connections to it based on people and their families and their lives. But it's such an important issue. But um, Senator Kamlager, as as well as Assemblyman Brian Garcia and Gonzalez, and just to, uh, one one more shout out, and then I'll get into the juice is uh, we we co-sponsored this with the State Council on Disabilities and Legal Aid at Work. So this was a an intense fight. It's been going on for a long time. And um, as Saru mentioned, it's still going on nationally. So um, it reminds me of the marriage equality fight that, you know, sort of state by state, each state started to do the right thing. And then eventually it changed for the country. So that's what we're looking forward to um, here. But as Saru noted, back in uh, 1938, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, there was an exemption so that people with disabilities could be paid less than minimum wage. And apparently it was well-intentioned at the time. There was people coming home from war with um, physical impairments and employers didn't want to hire people that they perceived wouldn't be able to work as efficiently. And so this was a way to try and combat um, unemployment rates for people with disabilities. Well, Fast forward all these years later, there's still an egregiously high rate of unemployment among people with disabilities. um, And people are taking advantage of this 14 C exemption to the Fair Labor Standards Act to pay people with disabilities Mm -hmm. less than minimum wage. Some of whom are getting, you know, 15 cents to the dollar while the corporations are profiting off their backs and making huge profits. Um, So- Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, the other piece of it, too, is there's so many levels to the issue, but uh, it also often occurs in segregated settings. So this is another insidious piece of our history, but there's a lot of, um, they're called sheltered workshops where people with disabilities are kind of housed together doing work that's not necessarily consistent with their interests or abilities or strengths, but they're all kind of thrown together and asked to do a particular thing and measure um It's complicated, but the the bottom line is that not only is it an issue of um, of fair pay, but also equality and um, incorporation into all aspects of society so that folks are working in all the different sectors that they want to be consistent with their abilities Mm -hmm. and then finally. as Saru mentioned, we, uh, we are also really committed to seeing subminimum wage end for people in who are incarcerated and people in locked facilities, um, psychiatric facilities as well. Again, there's people with disabilities, you know, and all of those places. And we also see that we're stronger together when we stand in solidarity with the other movements fighting for justice. So we're really excited to see what's happening, the momentum across the country and um, we're proud to be part of the start.
1: Thank you. And you led right into the next speaker. Um, that people who are incarcerated experience extraordinary injustice. But with all these fires, we have people who are in cars, who've been incarcerated, fighting these fires, making subminimum wage. Um, it's 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 so unfair. And we're so lucky to have John Cannon with us, who is from Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. Let's what's going on in this
5: arena? I, um First of all, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate the work that everybody's doing. Um, little about myself, my name is John Cannon. I am a policy fellow at Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. And um, I'm a member of Abolish Bondage Collectively campaign. But before that, I did 10 years in prison. Um, I was actually in- incarcerated when I was 16 and they certified me as an adult. And I didn't have anybody to put money on my books, so I did look forward to working in there. And as soon as you come out the fish tank, they assign you a job, they put me on um, yard labor. So I thought I was gonna be getting paid, but that job is actually not a paid job. So I finally moved my way up to a paid job and it was a kitchen job. Then I worked warehouse, I did uh, license plates, making shoes, Um, eventually I made my way to being a firefighter. And I fought fires for three years altogether, and it was hard work, and it's, it's dangerous work, and um, you know, you, it, it takes a lot out of you, and you don't get paid in there. You get paid only a dollar, a dollar an hour when you're on a fire, but when you're not on the fire, you're 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 doing um, construction, building rock walls, building fences, doing stuff like that, and you're and you're only making a dollar a day. So it's just, it was really hard being that. That was my first introduction into the workforce because I was 16, I was still in high school when I went to prison. So, you know, it just gave me a bad light a look at the workforce and it just being um, used for my labor and and being, just not getting anything from it. So even getting out, I wasn't able to even get a job as a firefighter because I had uh, the felony. And just knowing that if I would have been able to earn minimum wage while I was in there working, and also, that's money that would have um, rightfully earned while I was working. It would have helped me out tremendously because when I got out, you know, I got out to nothing, and you know, I went in when I was 16, so I didn't have anything. I didn't have clothes or anything. I got out with $200 after working all those years without getting paid for that for that sweat and that struggle. You know, it was just, it's just it 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 just messes you up. It's a lot of mental anguish to go with it. So when I got out, um, I got blessed enough to be able to uh, get in a space at, with legal services for prisoners with children. And we have a campaign where we are actually trying to end the involuntary servitude. And recently, we just got a resolution passed in Oakland um, about ending involuntary servitude. I was able to speak to it. i speak about my past there at the city council. And, you know, they all felt like pretty much if you think about it, it's just a human rights situation. You know, nobody should be, Nobody should be involuntary servant. Nobody should be paid less for, and it doesn't matter if you went to, if you're incarcerated or anything, you know, it's being incarcerated is not supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be rehabilitative, but you know, that's, it's more punitive when you're extorting somebody for their labor. So I'm just blessed to be in this situation where with this campaign, we're just trying to end all the vestiges of slavery and I'll just really respect you guys for doing this work, too.
1: It is so refreshing to see these issues in the truth. It's just being able to think of the human rights that we all give human value. Let's dig a little deeper into around people who have been incarcerated. We have is
6: Uh, Yeah, no, thank you um, so much and and, you know, thank you all. I do also appreciate um, this opportunity uh, and this platform. Um, You know, I'll I'll say, uh, well, my name is Espan Nunez. I've I've been with the anti-recidivism coalition uh, since I've been home. Um, I I paroled in 2016. you know, when I, uh, when I came home, I really was life coaching a lot of young men out of Pine Grove, uh, which is a fire camp uh, for youth. Um, and, you know, I, I saw them similar to, to John, come home and, and find no, have no pathway uh, to employment. You know, those, those are for sure transferable skills, um, but there was no pathway for them. For, so for me to be able to, to see individuals who are sacrificing their life for the betterment and the preservation of, of our communities, um, only only be denied when they when they return home was heartbreaking um, and you know what so two two separate issues that, that I've worked on that um, brought forth a solution to, to that um, I'll start with SCR 69 um, so it, it it was restoring dignity for incarcerated workers um, authored by Senator Bradford who is the chair of the legislative black caucus here in California um, and we're re- really prompted and also have we did do that in partnership with legal services for for prisoners with children and other organizations um, but we did so because what we found was formerly incarcerated people were ten times more likely to be homeless. The average amount of debt associated to just fines and fees was thirteen thousand dollars when somebody comes home. Um, the average child support order uh, another ten thousand dollars and a brookings institute the Brookings Institute. Um, did a study on, on how much people would make when they came home, and um, they found that only uh, only 55% of formerly incarcerated people re- reported any kind of earnings their first year of being home. Um, furthermore, the medium income of those 55% uh, was only $10,000. Um, so as you can imagine, that is not a livable wage by any means. That's not uh, that's not money that you can support a family with. That's not money that you can even support yourself with. Um, so we introduced... Uh, SCR 69 as a result in 2019. Unfortunately, it didn't make it all the way to the governor's uh, desk just because of COVID. Um, But when COVID broke, um, we saw state uh, state industries and the federal uh, prison industry really scramble to mass produce hand sanitizers, masks and soaps uh, for state departments. And that was the prison industries that was doing it. Um, These individuals weren't afforded showers when they were coming home. Uh, from work, they weren't able to wash their clothes uh, in the sinks in the day room. and, and when you're locked up uh, and you have no, no other means to wash your clothes, you're, you're left yeah. to doing it in either your toilet or your sink. Um, so that's not a dignity, that's not a dignified way um, to, to take care of yourself or your, or your workspace or even just your clothes. and um, the and so we are also um, sponsoring uh, ACA3 which ends in voluntary servitude from from the California Constitution, and there's also a national movement. Um, to end and to strike out involuntary servitude from the national constitution, um, Senator Merkley uh, from Utah is is a sponsor of that of that federal legislation. And here in California, Assemblywoman or Senator, excuse me, Com uh, is sponsoring the Assembly constitutional amendment. Um, so when the Assembly constitutional amendment passes, it does go to voters. Um, so I would ask that voters um, please take take special pay special attention to this. Um, it would it would be uh, hopefully on the ballot in 2022, um, and we would look to, to hopefully end involuntary servitude in, in California. I mean, many states have done it. Most recently, Colorado in 2018, and in 2020, Nebraska and Utah um, passed it, and it went to voters. So, um, and you know, those are those are two states that uh, aren't necessarily as progressive as as California. So, uh, we are hopeful that that'll pass. Um, you know, I, I, I also. I'll start by saying I pay, I was paid 16 cents uh, an hour inside. Um, I came home with over 400 thousand dollars in debt of restitution. Um, if I was paid minimum wage in prison, uh, I would have paid most of my money towards my restitution. Um, I pay 1800 dollars a month right now in restitution, um, and and for me, um, you know that's a that's a very costly cost. But I have I have no issue paying the victims that that I harmed. Um, I just wish that I would have had a better means to do so earlier on. Um, so I would so it wouldn't impede on my ability to to reintegrate back in, into society. Um, I, so I don't want to take up too much more time. I'll leave it for for other folks. But um, again, I appreciate this opportunity um, and everybody's support and, and really just the the, the effort, um, the continuous effort, uh, and the tenacity. So, thank you.
1: And we appreciate you and all that you're doing to try to push push these issues forward. Let's. A lot of people have known very what we've talked about so far, but the number of people who have been to this subminimum wage because of the expansion of gig work really raised a lot of consciousness. Vanessa.
7: Hey, folks, Uh, my name is Vanessa Bean. I am an Instacart shopper of nearly six years um, and an organizer in the gig economy of over five years now. Um, And I co-founded an organization called Gig Workers Collective, which is a collective of gig workers. Go figure. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, uh, you know. As an Instacart shopper, um, I think initially I was under the impression that I was making more than minimum wage. Uh, Most people come to the gig economy with a background in traditional employment instead of self-employment, right? Um, And because we're illegally misclassified as independent contractors pretty much throughout the world but definitely throughout uh north america right uh it, our employer is not bound to pay us any minimum wage um we have no rights and no labor protections um under you know the FLRA uh, or um the nlrb and so uh we don't even have the federally protected right to organize um this unfortunately means that our uh our work, the quality and um, sort of like the value that the work adds to our lives has declined significantly over time. Um, And I think it's important to note that, you know, this is also an intersectional issue. Um, Gig work is done overwhelmingly by black and brown folks. Um, Instacart shopping specifically is done overwhelmingly by women. Um, And the overwhelming majority of gig workers are also immigrants. You know, there are also folks that, you know, end up in this line of work due to disabilities and having the ability to work when they can, can be really beneficial. Um, And I think obviously more work needs to be accommodating in that way. However, because of these, you know, marginalized identities that most of us, um, you know, are a part of what that means is that the uh, sort of subjugation and exploitation is largely dismissed or ignored. Um, this would not be the case. I, I can say, you know, with certainty this would not be the case if uh, the gig economy was a predominantly white male workforce, able-bodied workforce. Um Unfortunately, <laughs> what I have to say about my earnings is that, you know, over the past six years, they went from being something that I could sustain myself and pay my rent with um, to something where, you know, by 2019, I think the AGI of uh, myself and my partner who are both gig workers um and have a child, by the way, um, was $28,000. Now, I live in Silicon Valley, um, and this is one of the highest costs of living areas in the entire in the entire United States. Um, And we were both working full time doing gig work. um, And, you know, we're well below (laughs) the poverty line for a family of three, unfortunately, and like significantly, significantly below uh, what I would consider to be a living wage in this area. Uh, Someone mentioned a figure closer to about $30 an hour. I think that that's, that's much more of a living wage in the area that I live in um and unfortunately what this meant for me is that i ended up not having very much time at all to be a parent to be present um you know it was it was devastating because Part of why I wanted to continue to shop for Instacart was the ability to drop my kid off at school in the morning, the ability to pick her up at school when her day was over, um, the ability to, you know, take time off if I wanted to go to her, you know, recital or her graduation. Um, those were the things that really, like, drove me to want to have a, quote, flexible earning opportunity. And the unfortunate reality is that that slipped further and further and further away. Um, The longer I have worked in the gig economy, the less I have earned. And that is true of all gig workers. (laughs) Um, In fact, most of us don't, don't last anywhere near a year, let alone several years. Um, But you know, what it would mean to me if we were properly classified, if we were entitled to minimum wage is that my income would go up significantly my um the company that i worked for instacart in fact tried to uh offset our earnings uh their contributions to our earnings with customer tips which is you know in essence the same as a tipped minimum wage um now, we were able to organize and um, agitate and actually get them to reverse course on that pay model, which was fantastic. Um, however, you know, when we're talking about uh, the ideas of minimum wage and the ideas of um, labor protections and things like that, when when you go outside of the state of California, what you find oftentimes is that workers think of those things as either highly conceptual or not particularly good for them, because they sure. have like a tip minimum wage. Um, and so what we ideally need is one consistent fair minimum wage for all workers. Um, And, you know, it shouldn't matter what age you are, what race you are, what your national origin is, what your sexual orientation is, whether you're incarcerated or not incarcerated, Um, because once we allow the standards to slip for one classification or one group of workers, it erodes the meaning of labor protections for all workers. And I will leave it there.
1: And that's a perfect place to leave it, because that is the point. One wage that sets the floor that nobody can fall beneath. Saru, a lot of people in the audience want to know how to be helpful. Uh, Even if it's not an issue for them directly, how do they make their voices heard? How do they get engaged?
0: Yeah, I've I've been looking at some of the questions, really outstanding questions from the audience, and oh my god, what an amazing panel. Thank you all so much for your amazing words and your willingness to share. But. As I said, we are fighting to end all subminimum wages in the United States of America, all the subminimum wages you heard here, precisely for what Vanessa said at the end, that if we have a minimum wage, the definition of a minimum is that there should be nothing less than it. And so how can you have really at this point, one in 10 American workers earning less than a legal minimum wage, then the word minimum has no meaning in the United States. So um, you can get involved by going to our website, onefairwage.org. You can hit take action. And there it allows you to call your senators, tell your senators, it's time to end all minimum wages in the U.S. At that Page, you can also see the restaurants that are now paying higher than the minimum wage and tips and tell them you. This is great. We need you to keep doing it because part of the concern is that this is a temporary blip. Some of these employers, not amazing employers like Chef Kren, but there are employers in other parts of the country who are thinking, I'll pay 15 now and I'll go back to paying $2 or $3 next year. So we can't let that happen. We have to communicate to employers across the country that we appreciate them paying more now and it's got to keep happening. And the last thing is on that same page, you'll see you can become a raise the wage voter. We need to tell our elect- officials, even here in California, that people voted in 2020 in very large numbers, believing that this administration would deliver on raising wages and ending subminimum wages. I can tell you Literally millions of restaurant workers voted in 2020 for the first time, believing that the Biden-Harris team and a Democratic Senate and and, and an assembly would deliver on raising the minimum wage. It was a campaign promise. Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't deliver on that, we're going to suffer the consequences in November 22. And so we need everybody to sign, sign up saying, I'm a raise the wage voter. We need to support candidates that support raising the minimum wage and tell others that if they don't, it's going to look bad. It's going to end up bad. There are going to be consequences in 22 and 24 and every year going forward. So go to onefairwage.org and you can learn a lot more about these things. Also, please tell people... To get the book, not because we're trying to sell a lot of books, but because I'll bet everybody learned something here today. And I bet most Californians have no idea about the subminimum wages that still exist in California. Most Americans have no idea about all of these subminimum wages. And so it's time we learn, learn the history and learn what we can do about it
1: there's a role for everybody in making sure that we deal with this. You're right. People have no idea. Uh, Chef crin someone wonders what your uh, fellow restaurateurs think about your model and whether or not it is taking off.
3: Well, I think, the yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, um, it's been, um, it's been like a few years now and I can, uh, I can tell you today that it's pretty amazing. You know, um, I, I, I have also a team that stay with me um, we can you know and so this is very pro productive for the restaurant on top of that um, you also uh the people that get into the company feel that there is a sense of taking care of them you know it's a company where they can grow uh where where they can feed you know their family, but also maybe perhaps they can get another uh, a salary because they they grow within the company. So I think it's yeah it works and I think everybody should be able to do that you know, and I think in the restaurant it's also um, to understand that as an employer maybe sometimes you need to take away a little bit of your profit and reinvest into your employee. And, in the long run, even if you think oh i'm going to lose money. I'm not making as much money as I use, but in the long run, when you do this and when you do this for the good of the people that are working with you it's it's richer than ever so and and you know so yes, so this model worked very well yes mm-hmm, that's good Esteban,
1: um, there was a question about whether uh minimum wage to prison citizenship
6: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe the two are intrinsically tied. I mean, if you, if you aren't able to provide for you or for your family, uh, you're left to, to, to doing what you know how to do best. So you're left to, um, you go in survival, me- into survival mode and, and, you know, you got to eat. I mean, the reality is, is you have to eat and you have to have shelter. I had a, I was mentoring a kid, um, you know, when I first came home and, uh, he was couch surfing. Um, you know, I consider that homeless, but, uh, the state he doesn't consider that homeless and, and uh they wouldn't house him because he wasn't sleeping on the streets and uh um you know this kid looked me in my eyes and said I have to go back to doing what I know how to do. Um, you know, I don't have food in in my fridge. I don't have a fridge and I don't know where I'm gonna sleep. Um and I was stifled because he, the, the reality is is he was right. Um, you know, there was I mean what can you what can you people have to survive. Um mm-hmm. so I I absolutely believe the two are, are intrinsically tied. Yeah.
1: Uh, wondering where your movement stands now 18 months into the pandemic that to
7: clarify that question was directed at me yes okay (laughs) sorry I wasn't sure because I didn't hear the first part of it um you know it's been honestly I've been organizing for over five years at this point um and the pandemic in a lot of ways was like a lens that that really like magnified a lot of pre-existing issues that have existed within the gig economy and obviously a lot of these other industries as well um you know in our case because we're misclassified we don't have health insurance sick time we didn't have any um None of our employers felt an onus of responsibility to provide us with things like PPE, um, even though we were quite literally like going into hotbeds of COVID, right? Um, And I would say that in the last, you know, 18 months, uh, (coughs) the companies that we work for have profited immensely, um, I know Rideshare has, you know, taken a a, a, a nosedive <laughs> in terms of the demand, um, but delivery services have skyrocketed, right? Um, and become more and more commonplace. Uh so what we found is that, you know, f- in a, in many I- industries, the workforce was decimated by this pandemic, but in our industry, it, it actually increased substantially. Um, Instacart alone went from having less than 200,000 of us shoppers throughout the country um, prior to the pandemic to something like 750,000 of us at this point, right? Um, and it's actually been a really big struggle for workers because aside from the fact that, you know, like our unemployment benefits just ended, right, which put a a huge chunk of folks that were able to shelter in place back into the workforce um, by necessity. There are such saturated markets that, that folks are sitting in grocery store parking lots for like 6 hours trying to earn a few bucks right um saru mentioned earlier the idea of paying for the privilege to earn tips and that's essentially in a nutshell that's what the gig economy is um you know, aside from the fact that, you know, like we literally own all of the, you know, means of production and supply those to our employers and are misclassified for it and oftentimes pay to work. um, I would say it's been a pretty devastating past 18 months for gig workers. Um, You know, we've gotten sick, we don't have health insurance, um, we don't have sick pay, we have no meaningful access to, um, you know, any of the protections that that, uh, that we deserve and that we really need, uh, but we're still as workers going strong in in terms of organizing and 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 putting up resistance. And in fact, just this weekend, um, Instacart workers walked off of our jobs and started a delete Instacart campaign because they don't deserve to IPO off of this pandemic that has quite literally killed many of us um made many of us ill and and you know get get to go home with a big fat paycheck right like um unfortunately is the case with many of the biggest companies in this in this country and in the world um and so we're telling our customers just to delete the app and, and find alternative ways to get these things done a lot of folks are back grocery shopping for themselves now um and so you know it's it's a it's a slow but steady <laughs> race toward uh, our liberation and the end of our exploitation
1: before mm. I wrap up and thank this amazing panel for bringing all of this um, color and and, and detail and, and humanity to this important issue, I want to come back to the first question that I saw come up. And I'm going to ask you, Saru, um, the COVID has caused so much pain and suffering, but is it COVID that really has caused us as a nation to begin to look where we have not wanted to look before?
0: Mm. Yes. I mean, COVID brought us together, right? (laughs) We are here together speaking with one voice that we need to end all and pain in America, understanding each other's struggles in part because we learned through the pandemic that we are interdependent. And as Vanessa said, if anybody earns less than the minimum, we all suffer. If anybody was uh, now earning less than the minimum as a result of slave, as a legacy of slavery, it's an impact. It's impacting everybody. And, um we we also are seeing as i said some people are calling the press is calling it the great resignation i don't like that phrase because it feels like we're resigning like we're resigned to something no it's the great mm-hmm. rebellion it is workers striking it is workers standing up it is workers saying we will not put up with this anymore and you know if you think about the pandemic the first year was us calling people essential, right? Workers like Linda and Vanessa and many others, we were calling them essential. And many of us started over time to feel like, wow, that's a dirty word because essential means exploited and extorted as John was saying. Essential essentially means essentially disposable. Um, But what has evolved is rather that at first we were hopeful, oh, they're calling us essential. That means they're going to do something for us. No, it meant the opposite. They were going to exploit us. And so the hope has moved from what the label you're going to give to us to the label that we're going to create for ourselves, which is that we're no longer going to put up with it. Workers are standing up for themselves and saying Mm -hmm. no longer. And employers like Dominique Krantz, so many amazing employers are responding. But here's the thing. We can't it can't be workers and employers on their own figuring it out. You know, I am not one that believes the market solves all problems. It has to be policy. It has to be regulation. Ultimately, we need our elected officials to solve these original dirty sins of our country and resolve this Mm -hmm. by ending all sub minimum wages in the U.S. So, yes, the pandemic has changed everything in terms of our willingness to stand up. Will electeds hear that and follow remains to be the question, but I think we are getting there. I think we're on our way.
1: I think we are. I think we are, too. Thank you, audience, for those real questions. There's a tradition at the Commonwealth Club or in the forum at the end to ask, what is your 60-second idea to um, real quick, I'll start with you, Saru. I'll,
0: I'll take less than sixty seconds and say I am a true believer. I do believe ending minimum wages in the U.S. will change the world because if we can do this in this country, which is dominating so much of the world, I think it will have ripple effects everywhere.
1: John, what do you think?
5: I would just say divesting from um, structural racism and investing in our communities and our people. Thank you, Sarah.
4: I would echo my colleagues and just say true quality for all and pay and treatment and everything across the board. Yeah, as as my shirt
2: says, um, go to onefairwage.org, you know, be a raise the wage voter and just join the fight wherever you are. Join from your phone, join from the computer, join on the streets um get in face of your member of Congress and then demand then that they pass legislations and to hold them accountable. Otherwise, you know, we'll vote them out and they won't have their jobs anymore. So um, just you know keep putting the pressure on.
0: Okay. Well thank you so much, Angela. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Dominique Crane. Thank you, John, Esteban, Sarah, and Vanessa. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, thank you for sharing your stories. And thanks to the audience and the Commonwealth Club for pulling this together. Um, I, as I mentioned, do have a lot of hope. I think we're on the cusp of huge change in the restaurant industry, and I hope it can also create reverberations for all other sectors, for all subminimum wage workers in the U.S. I know I won't stop fighting until we truly have one fair wage for all. Thank you all for joining us. Join us
1: November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live
4: events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org.